Welcome to Best Adapted Podcast, a podcast about film adaptations and the stories which inspired them. I'm Frank, joined, joined as always by my wonderful co-host, the green giant himself, Caleb Drecke. Caleb, how are you? I'm doing great. Frank, thanks for having me on. It's both my uh, my honor and my obligation. Um, and uh, with us this week, uh, we have a guest. Uh, she has written for The New Republic and Bomb Magazine and various other newspapers and trade publications and etc. The wonderful Rachel Stone. Rachel, how are you? Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for being here, Rachel. So t- today we are talking about uh, Fernando Mireles's uh, 2005, I'm not sure what exactly to call it. Masterpiece. F- film. <laughs> um, uh, Obligation. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Constant Gardener. So, Rachel, I know you hadn't read this novel before um, we started talking about you coming on the pod, but I w- was wondering what relationship you have with human rights literature or John le Carre or or just the sort of aura around this particular novel or John le Carre generally? So I really knew next to nothing about John le Carre. Um, and I think like around between when you told me about coming on this podcast and then when I actually started like engaging in it, um, starting to read the book, which I did not finish and watching <laughs> this film, um, I like John le Carre died. So I feel like that was kind of like really the only time that I kind of understood who he was. I had no idea before, which is I realized kind of embarrassing because he has pretty formidable legacy. Um, and as for like the aura around him, um, extremely not steeped in it and also not really steeped in any like human rights literature or spy literature. Um, I was trying to think like the only thing that seems similar is Shirley Hazard Transit of Venus, which is primarily a love story and then has like one B plot re like UN politics. But aside from that, I'm a real noob. Um, so I'm excited to hear what more like practiced, uh, you know, compatriots of his or, you know, followers, denizens, if you will, um, have to say about this. And if that like impacted your guys's take on the movie. Rachel, you should not be embarrassed that that you reacted to John Lacaray's death as you did, because uh, Caleb and I just reacted with dollar signs in our eyes, realizing that we had gotten the jump on a podcast about him uh, and had already three episodes in the bank before he died. So she bought a lottery ticket. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, should should we jump into the into the into the novel? Yes. So uh, before we start uh, talking about the, the actual meat and text of the novel, uh, this novel came out in two thousand one. Um, which I think is important because, as we've talked about many times on this pod, John le Carre is sort of the quintessential cold warrior. That's how he saw the world, and it's how he expressed the world in in his art, which is not his his books aren't always specifically or textually about international politics, but it's always steeped in the world of espionage, international politics, until the '90s and the fall of the Soviet Union and the beginning of Pax Americana, and he sort of had a real struggle with figuring out how else to explore the world. And in 2011, uh, a, a forward that he wrote for a, um, a new edition of, of a 1990 novel, um, he wrote that he, he was reckoning with this and he asked himself, uh, now that the West has dealt with rogue forms of communism, how is it going to deal with rogue forms of capitalism? And 
the thing that he latched onto is that he read a story about uh, a um, uh, a drug trial in uh, Lagos, Nigeria, in which uh, Pfizer killed eleven Nigerian children um, by testing a uh, an experimental antibiotic, um, and that was his impetus to to take a look at the the expansion of corporate imperialism in Africa specifically, but the global South more generally. And that is the inspiration um, for this novel, which is very much about pharmaceuticals and imperialism and sort of the decline of the West as an, uh, a political imperial power and its rise as an economic imperial power. So Rachel, I, you, you say you didn't finish the novel, which I think is understandable because it's not good, but um, I do want to know what, um, so you, you coming in blind to Le Carre, was there anything that, that struck you that you found bizarre or fascinating or interesting at all? Or was it just, just kind of a drag? Um, I mean, it was kind of, I don't know what I was necessarily expecting. Uh, it kind of fit, I mean, it fit, um, I guess just like the general vibe of like, there's been a death who did it, perhaps all of us, perhaps the United States, I don't know. But like, um, I think watching it, obviously, now, during pandemic, I was pretty, um, I guess, like, he was pretty spot on when it came to, like, it it makes sense that like, the meat of the story, like, hinged around, um, like, pharmaceutical interests, and like, that being sort of the like heart of where this book started um because i feel like that plot made the most sense and felt the most like on the nose for me um and then everything else kind of seemed definitely um much weaker and took up much more of the story than i thought that it would um again like talking about kind of like you know mishmash between the what i did read of the novel and then of the film um but yeah i don't know that's kind of yeah, that seemed like the strongest, most salient part of it. Yeah. Um, so, I think we've we've been pretty glowing in our in our treatment of, of Mr. Lacare on uh, on this podcast so far. But I I also found this novel pretty tiresome, and we can get into sort of the things that I actually find interesting about it in a bit. But I think we we should address the things that are weak in this novel and are weak generally uh in his work and i think the thing that is most striking is is his uh treatment of women um uh john lacare is 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 obviously famous for characters like george smiley and alec lemus who are sort of uh these tortured conflicted men who uh you know are trying to come to grips with the moral and intellectual decline of the worlds that they pledged themselves to um and women for the most part, are not allowed to have that complexity, and and the the primary woman around uh, around which this story is centered is is Tessa, and Tessa is not so much a person as a uh, an exotic bird. Um, <laughs> she is beautiful and fragile and wise beyond her years, and maternally protective, and uh, uh, and uh, also just so fucking hot because that's really important for john <laughs> Carre to let you know is that she is just like she's stacked and like <laughs> and it, well that's i mean we're laughing but it's it's pretty 
It's and every woman in this novel, it, it's the same in, in side characters, including Gita, who's in the movie, and Lara, who's also in the film to a lesser degree, are also universally described as just brilliant and just so goddamn hot. And it's um it's it's not good. Um <laughs> and I think tying into that is his depiction of Africans in this novel. Um I I did a little a little reading. Uh, there's a, a, a paper, uh, Pharma in Africa, Health, Corruption, and Contemporary Kenya in The Constant Gardener by Daniel Branch, um, which is mostly about the film adaptation of this novel, but sort of talks about uh, the structures of Kenyan society and the ways that they resist colonialism and capitalism in ways that are not at all addressed by Le Carre in his novel where where instead uh, Africans are sort of uh, just depicted as sort of voiceless repositories of suffering um, to be saved by the efforts of specifically white women. And um, in fact, he goes so far as to just describe it as uh, the white woman's burden. Um, and that's, I think that is kind of the greatest and most egregious failing of this novel. And we'll talk about of this movie is um, the way that it strips exploited people of any sort of voice or agency in the stories of their own exploitation and makes it, you know, about the white people who feel bad. Right. Tessa's unimpeachably perfect. And so is Bloom. And like the the first scenes that we see of um, her and Bloom are of these just like killed and mutilated bodies. And then the next couple scenes later, we see Tessa as this like, she's like nursing a sick baby um on her breast who's not her baby it is a like baby in a clinic nearby and like this like extreme madonna who either who like never is alive in the book itself she's dead from the beginning um but like yeah she's either this like cipher perfect woman who has all the politics and is just like beyond perfect um or is yeah, there's like there's no actual heart to her, so she just gets to speak for every idea that like seems to be perfect, which doesn't like <laughs> that's fun probably to play, but like that doesn't really do much in the way of building a an actual character. Does the book have the same? So it's got the same flashback structure as the film. So it's a little more dispersed. It's it's got the same uh, opening with with Justin learning about his wife's death, but it's, it's an investigation of his wife's murder, but also an investigation of his marriage. So he's sort of, as he uncovers a clue about the conspiracy to, to kill and silence his wife, he's also finding out the things that she was doing behind his back um, and the way that she interacted with him and why she interacted him and with him in those ways. Is it a lot more grounded in like Justin's subjectivity then? Because I think one of the flaws of the movie is that it, will just kind of add new characters and and just kind of expand ex- its scope to just throw an exposition when so it's it's sort of like a fractured timeline flashback but it's not actually mm-hmm. attached to like Justin's memory in any real way how does that work in the book like most Lacare novels it's i mean it, it it will leave uh Justin's perspective at times and will follow Sandy for a bit or Gita for a bit but it's mostly centered around Justin for the bulk of it. And I I do want to talk about Justin here because he is the titular constant gardener. And I think that is the thing that is central to his character. Because in the film, 
that that thing about him is portrayed that he likes to garden, um, which is not at all what Le Carre is writing. Um, Justin is uh, he's an old Etonian. He's sort of the last of his breed. He's a he's a Victorian gardener, um, someone who is he's a botanist, essentially, who is obsessed about cataloging and fostering and controlling life that he finds beautiful, mostly because he doesn't want to see the ugliness that the world actually is. And so he doesn't actually do much gardening in the book, but it's just he is willfully blind to the things that are around him and the things that are caused by people like him. Um, so yeah, very much tied to Justin. Rachel, I saw you put a big hand on your head probably through when we mentioned the, the gardening. Is there, a, is there something you reacted to there? <laughs> well, it's mostly because I went straight over my head, <laughs> and to which I'm really embarrassed about. I was about to start, like, really, who is the constant gardener? And in fact, is of course, Justin fretting around his plants. But it does make a big difference that, like, right, that that's... Uh, of course, he's, you know, watering the plants, but the actual, the the film doesn't really give you much in the way of any sort of complexity on that either. It's just like, he's just there uh, putting some, putting, making sure his ferns are doing fine in his little like greenhouse structure. Yeah. Interesting. They chose to be extremely literal with that <laughs> instead of maybe <laughs> exploring a little bit more. <laughs> any more thoughts on the book? Should we crack into the film? Yeah. I've, w- one last thing about the book is which i think is another thing that kind of uh, the movie just punts on is is the the structure of three bees which is the, the the pharma company that is running the testing um in nairobi and uh uh what i find interesting about this and it's not super heavily harped upon in the novel but three bees the logo comes from the flag of the island of elba which was the island prison of napoleon and uh tessa makes that very clear how upset she is because she's from elba um and uh what is interesting about that is that Lacare is saying that uh the monsters of the new world of imperialism are the same ones as as the old as the old world just repackaged much like Napoleon, uh, Three Bees is, it's an offshore repository for all of the greed and the savagery and the imperial ambitions that a supposedly enlightened and post-war Europe would just pretend to forget about and, and distance themselves from. But it is very much still there and still driving events in the backgrounds just with a slick corporate polish. But again, uh, this is not something that's harped upon very much in the novel. There's not a whole lot of talking about what it is to be a, a corporate imperialist. But that's I found it found it interesting. But uh, mostly, this this book is just not very good. It's it's just it, there's a couple of really abysmal sequen- sequences. One in which Justin learns how to use a computer that just made me want to die. Um, it's this is a very long novel. And there's really not much to commend it other than its good intentions. You know, that's really all people are going to say about our podcast, though, to be fair, Caleb. So. <laughs> okay, um, so let's talk uh, a little bit of pre-pro, uh, pre-production. So uh, this film comes out in, in 2005, um, so four years after the novel is published. Uh, it is adapted by Jeffrey Kane, who's mostly a British TV writer, and I swear this is going to be the last time we talk about it. But in 1995, he wrote Goldeneye, James Bond. This is like the 18th James Bond connection that we've talked about 
in in this podcast and it's yeah. the last time we're going to talk about it so i think we should finally just like boil it down sure what what is it about john le carré that makes the bond boys come crawling to him once they've washed their hands of 007 well he's graduation right or like or maturity like he's a, he's a mature, more mature version of bond i think is like the the easy reading or i think why like filmmakers would be attracted to it probably from the studio perspective it's uh you probably trust these properties more if you've got like uh, an established hand who's been behind like a, another kind of commercially su- successful spy movie, even if it's quite different from from Lecker, eh? Yeah, I think that's 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 probably it. But I I was wondering if is there some sort of like guilt about the jing- the Western jingoism of Bond that must be assuaged with the sort of moodiness of of Lacare. Sure, like you do your fun spy movie and then you switch over into like your moral one or you're like your one that has like some values that it's trying to get across. Yeah. 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 Um anyway, I don't have much to say about it, but uh look, if you write a James Bond movie, just do the world a favor and uh, don't uh, don't uh, jump to John Lacare. It's been done before. Uh find a new path, my friends. Um Okay. Would Daniel Craig be a good uh, George Smiley or something though, Caleb? I could be. He he could be a Lemus. Yeah. I think. Yeah. But he's 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 too he's I don't think he's smart enough to be to be Smiley. So uh, this film optioned uh, pretty much immediately after after publishing, um, and I think the next big development comes in two thousand two, which is when Brazilian director Fernando. For, Ah, Fernando Mireles, along with his cinematographer, uh, Cesar Charlone, um, release City of God. Um, and I know you love this movie more than I do. And by all means, feel free to sort of take over and talk about uh, Mireles' visual style. But I think I have an idea of why he gets this film coming off of City of God. But Yeah, I mean, City of God is a, is a, is a really lush and kind of engrossing depiction of um, a favela in Rio. And so I think if you are trying to, if you're looking at making a movie that takes place in like impoverished Kenya and you're trying to, uh, if you're a studio head trying to make this movie, I can see why you go to Mireles as the one to, as the one to film it because he's, I, you know, I would, I would assume that actually Kenya and Brazil are actually very different places having never been to either of them. But, um, if I'm just like some asshole in Hollywood, I can see why I would, would, would assume this guy could do a good job of taking on this location. And I think specifically what I think Hollywood saw in Morales is the City of God. The cast is mostly. Um, it should be noted that um, Morales was it was not from the favelas. He was a middle class person, mm-hmm. so it was an outsider coming into the story about crime and violence and poverty uh, in a way that could seem very uh, exploitative and uh, uh, poverty pornish. Um, but he he cast the film mostly with non-professional actors from the favelas, and I think I I brought up Cesar Charlone. Um, but the the way that City of God is shot, it's a lot of handheld camera work and a lot of really rapid editing and a lot of Dutch angles in a way that feels like the the audience has been thrown into the middle of the favela instead of watching it from outside. It's a very immersive film and in that way maybe feels a little bit less icky than it could so i can see why a hollywood big shot would say he can do the exact same thing with a different slum in a different country in the global south it also Um, has um it also has a fractured timeline like the constant gardener does yes 
but yeah, so, and, and this, I should say, this movie goes absolutely fucking gangbusters as far as Brazilian films in the U.S. goes. Mm-hmm. It's nominated for several Oscars. Uh, it's it's a critical hit. It's a financial hit. This was a big movie, and it seemed like Morales um, uh, was, was going to be kind of a big thing. Um, so let's get into the movie. Yeah, so it's very frantic kind of when it opens. So it, it almost doesn't even have like an opening scene, but more like an opening kind of scattershot sequences. Um, we see Justin, uh, played by Ray Fiennes, saying goodbye to Tessa, his wife, played by Rachel Weiss, um, on an airport tarmac. They're about to fly off. It fades out to this kind of like heavenly white, some might say, and then smash cuts to this um, turned over car in the uh, in South Africa, like along the highway, basically. Um, and her, she has been been ambushed in this vehicle, and she's been killed. We don't really know the context of where she's gone, other than it's some kind of humanitarian aid road trip um do we have any strong reactions to this to this opening i think it's mostly confusing and i like i doesn't quite hook me in i guess see i i thought it was uh it's a fairly straightforward adaptation of of how the the novel starts the novel starts with san in sandy's home as he's informing justin what has happened to tessa so at least showing the audience who tessa is is sort of not the worst idea in the world. Otherwise, that can that beat might be even more confounding. Um, but no, we don't we don't really get an idea of what the relationships are or what the stakes. Yeah, I think my gripe with it is that if it is kind of like Justin's last time he sees his wife, you want it to be something like more memorable or just kind of like an interaction that he would like turn over again in his head, and that you'd want the movie to give you as an audience just like more things to cling on to. There, I, I think it's just kind of too brief and bland. Which is maybe like sort of what they're trying to get at is that you don't know when someone's going to depart, so you don't know what their your goodbye with them is going to be. But um, and then we learn how how they met um, with another flashback to uh, the hand went up again. I saw re- another reaction. I really, from I really hate, I really hated this. Well, like, well, I guess what I think first it was I, I talked about this earlier, but, but like it was interesting that like in the, in the movie we see the film. Um, we see Tessa alive. We don't. You can call it a movie or a film. This <laughs> <laughs> just God don't call it a damn. picture. No, I really want to, but um, yeah, Talkie. but like we, <laughs> 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 um, but like yeah, she's alive for a little bit, which I thought was like perhaps you know she's not always this like you know ghost haunting the pages we learn about. Um, and again, I kind of had more high hopes for that. Um, and yeah, we have no time to connect with her at all. But then. Here's the thing. How did she get such impeccable politics? Where did she come from? And why exactly is she like lecturing um, Justin in his own room? Like it's it's so clearly like here is this perfect girl. She's not afraid to stand up for what she believes in. She's going to like point the finger at like hypocrisy and challenge him head on. But then she falls in love with him. So even like if she was if she had that many convictions, I don't think he's that hot um or important for her to fall in love with and then he's fine he's fine um but yeah i just got i got so annoyed with that because if you want to make this character this again like you know firebrand uh character who's not afraid to point fingers at least like give us a little more understanding um and about like yeah how she cultivated this yeah, she like heckles him when he's reading like a, a he's delivering a speech on 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 his work as a diplomat. Um 
it was making me think, um, you know, you'll see these videos where like, they always look semi-staged where like Ben Shapiro or someone will like get in a fight with a heckler or something at a college campus. Do you think mm-hmm. he's ever gotten a date out of that though? Do you think that'll ever happen to, to like him or Jordan <laughs> Peterson? They'll find true love because that's what happens here. And it's, uh, is whack. Is this how it goes in the book? Uh, pretty, yeah. Pretty, yeah. Uh, it's, I would say if, if anything, this, this sequence is less humiliating in, in the film because we don't actually see them flirt. <laughs> because uh, uh, like that is the that is the word for it like i'm just i was embarrassed for rachel weiss having to do that scene it's i would say the the film is is egregious in its own way i think the the this rest of the audience storming out of the out of the room uh melodramatically uh it felt so hollow and so uh mr smith goes to Hol- uh, to washington um and and so Hollywood, in a way that I, I mean, I don't think this relationship makes any sense uh, for anything other than narrative convenience, but as, generally, but it's just clear that no one in this film even tried to uh, ground the story in any sort of human connection or emotion but they seem to like think that they are you know like there's something about the like immediacy of this like really quick cutting handheld that i think uh well it basically it it, no matter what scene you're shooting it always feels i think a little more raw whether it's something if you want it to look like news coverage and you do like like kind of exoticizing footage of a foreign country and if you have it look handheld it feels like you're kind of overwhelmed and immersed in it but if you also do like uh, a love scene or just kind of any kind of intimacy film that way it also feels like rawer and so it's i don't know like i think like shaky cam has really fallen out of vogue and this movie was kind of a fun time catsball for that style but it's a lot more manipulative than i remember it being like in the 2000s when i would watch it in the theaters you know yeah i we can i think we're probably gonna be talking about the way that this film is shot throughout but i think especially this I mean, this 20 minute essentially ex- extended meet cute slash love scene. I mean, there's really no better way to emphasize, you know, a deep and instant connection than seven cuts in four seconds. Yeah. You, know? uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can really see the longing in their eyes. Um, no, this is rough. It's, it's really a, a, a pretty, um, and in a lot of really harsh fluorescent lighting also mm-hmm. <laughs> which it's it's pretty ugly you know it's not great it's not a great opening we go into the next scene where where Justin is informed that his wife has died and we're, we're introduced to to his colleague Sandy played by Danny Houston um i like the rare him in american this... what an american an american playing a brit the rare the rare yes. time that happens yeah He's good. I like, I like I him like in this. I think he's good in this. It's kind of a different tone from him. He's usually a lot more just like stout and like foreboding. And there is a certain like menace to Sandy as we get to know the character more. But I like him this soft spoken and kind of stooped over like he is throughout the movie and sort of uh, uh, afraid of, of, of Justin. Not like he should be. They're both kind of like betas. But <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't have much to say about it, really. It's a fine performance, but. But he does water a plant. He does. He he does. We see his first taste of gardening, um, and then and then we cut to the morgue where he finds Rachel's body, and I think it just kind of sets the tone for how this movie is going to treat everyone in Kenya who's not white, which is 
just a, a hallway of dead bodies covered in blankets um, and are just kind of, they're just, they're, they're, it's just decoration sort of, it's just really grisly kind of gruesome decoration. Um, and I don't know, I think there's supposed to be this real like sense of horror um, that these are the circumstances that, that Ray finds is, is discovering Rachel Weiss's body in. Um, I don't know. It's a weird film because I think it seems to try to want to be a depiction of like, like a group of kind of like white civil servants that have like very, that are exploiting, uh, people in Kenya and have like a very hard time connecting with them. And it's somehow simultaneously a movie that is itself having a really hard time connecting with Kenya in any substantive way. and is like exploiting, I think a bunch of actors in the country on the whole. I feel like the next most important scene is just like the big party where we meet kind of the different uh, British civil servants and like some of the spies and stuff, unless I'm like glossing over anything other other folks want to talk about. This film moves pretty quick. Yeah. And, and it's still fucking long. Like it's still like two hours <laughs> and five minutes. Like then they just, yeah. Like they, they, they find no one's really having any fun, even in the moments that are supposed to be like character building and building any sort of like, either connection or suspicion like they could have made i feel like if i remember correctly in the beginning of the novel like there's some skepticism toward like that sandy's kind of holding towards justin of like you know there might have been like who is the most likely suspect probably the like beautiful manicured husband and like watch him and and it's very clear that it's just like tackling the subject material just like very head-on very bluntly and then just like very obvious choices that don't feel surprising that don't feel exciting and just feel like what someone's idea of a perfect woman a perfect situation a perfect meet cute is which means it's super airless um and I guess like continues on and then without that framing of like any sort of desire to either like latch on to any complexity or like any interesting facet you kind of don't even really know where you want the film to go you're kind of just like led along by it without any real investment I didn't really care about Justin I didn't really care about Tessa that much I cared about Sandy a little bit because it was yeah there's like a little bit of menace um there's a little bit of like mealy mouthed like strangeness and his obsession with Tessa and his like violent reaction at the morgue of when he sees Tessa's body he vomits and I feel like it's the most like lack of control not very uh polite diplomat it's the only time someone really loses it and loses control until we get to Ray finds um one one long cry which I (laughs) can talk about later but like yeah no one really seems that you know perturbed or really put off at first um yeah and then we're just ushered along so this is a a feature of the novel again we talk about justin as the old eaten man and but he he has a a very haughty patrician air and a very reserve and this prevents him from connecting with people including his wife but also people who might help him solve the murder uh of his wife because he he doesn't know how to you know, uh, uh, be a human. Um, but that none, none of, none of that is portrayed either visually through, uh, camera work, because again, it is so choppy and refuses to linger on anything. Um, or I would say in, in, in Rafe Fine's performance, which is, uh, a, it's a, a wet sponge. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. Nothing burger. <laughs> it's, yeah. He's, uh, an entirely forgettable person and actor in this in this film. 
Um, but yeah, I think we can let's we can kind of speed through the major players in this conspiracy. In this in this party scene, we meet Bernard Pellegrin, who is the head of uh, the British Foreign Office, the chief diplomat in Africa. We have uh, Kenneth Curtis, who is the foul-mouthed, very unpatrician head of 3B's Pharma, who is testing a new drug in Nairobi. We have Tim Donahue, uh, who has a close but unexplained connection to Curtis and to 3B's, uh, and is yet is also very close friends with Noted humanitarian anti-imperialist uh, yeah. Tessa Quayle. <laughs> <laughs> this is baffling. But I kind of like this scene, I think. Like, it's sort of bad, but it's... I don't know. I, I think maybe I, it's, it's, uh, maybe I just sort of like the shape of it more than its execution. But I, I, I think the idea of having, like, an embassy garden party where you meet all these different kind of intrigue figures and, and have... Tessa kind of chewing them out and all kind of arranged across like a big garden party that needs to be polite. There's a good idea there. And I just don't think the movie executes it very well. Um, But I do think it does a fun magic trick of it's got a really, really stacked supporting cast. And so I think it does a nice job just bringing in these really recognizable faces like Bill Nye or Donald Sumter, um, just kind of showing up in frame without with like a really kind of unassuming introduction. I like that. I think Bill Nye is... I, I don't think we're probably going to talk about him again, but I think he is maybe the only good performance in this film. I think he's he's very yeah. tight jawed. Yeah, he's and good. He's he's the only one with with uh, I think real presence in the cast. Though I like Danny Houston. I think the twelve year old who teaches him how to use a computer is also very <laughs> good. That's a really strong, nuanced, <laughs> likable performance. Um. Okay, so let's move on. So. We we are back in in uh, flashback mode, running through Tessa and Justin's relationship. Uh, she is pregnant. She loses the baby. As Rachel said earlier, suddenly she appears nursing another woman's baby because she is perfect. Um, do we have? Uh, we get we get a glimpse of Pete Postlewaite with shout out to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pistol Pete, get that money, baby. I don't know. I guess maybe this is probably where we get the most like poverty porny sequences of Tessa like running around uh, Kenya. Do we have any any strong thoughts on this? Nothing other than it's gross. Um, and I, I think is there a depiction of Africans that in this film that's anything other than children smiling and waving or groups of women singing traditional, you know, songs in the most two thousand one. National Geographic documentary way. We have it's bad. Yeah. It's really it's really bad. We have the one Go guy who bikes in like a transition. Um, the one man, silent man on his bike, and that's more of just like a panorama shot than anything. Um, yeah. And we we follow him in, and he's biking around, he's hustle and bustle of the city. Um, but everything else is just like, look how Tessa um, knows everyone's name in the village, and like look look how Tessa like is able to you know how she's adapted and you know she's rugged but she's full of energy and at one point she's like on the computer and says using third person tessa never sleeps um which really really was my probably contender for the worst line in the film but yeah there's no actual (laughs) no actual engagement aside from like surface level like 
look how this like background can inform us on how our characters are supposed to be doing a good job engaging with where they're from or doing a bad job um and like for such an aesthetic use of your like home city um that where like the film is shot it feels really kind of a little bit bankrupt and a little bit flimsy and yeah very like let us celebrate UNESCO and like all join hands together and uh, celebrate the world kind of way um, that feels like very much a product of its time. There's this kind of striking shot where she sees a performance at a train station or something, I think, where it's it's like three sets of people who are all like dressed in the same outfit and like delivering lines together. It's, so it's like nine Kenyan performers on stage and it's kind of, it's visually striking. I think it's kind of a, like there's, there's something there. It's like, you know, it's it's a good composition, but the movie has done no effort to to explain any context or meaning behind it. And so I see that Tessa is like enjoying it or getting something out of it. But the movie has done nothing to like clue me in on like why she would be or like what that is, you know, like it does feel like National Geographic, like it just feels like just point the camera at like something colorful. I and I agree. And I think this is maybe a, the one moment where we can like we see sort of African culture for, you know, African eyes and not for the white people watching, but the play is about AIDS and (laughs) yeah, it's um, even in the one moment where Marilis might be able to translate some bit of Kenyan culture. um, He makes it just about suffering. This is, it's, uh, this is an ugly movie. Um, and I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to give him like the benefit of the doubt exactly, because um, I think it's like a bad movie, and I think he did a bad thing by making it. But he is also like a tourist in this country, and probably doesn't mm-hmm. know any more about Kenya than like I would. Well, I don't know. If I, I'm, I'm like uniquely stupid, but I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Like I, like what a weird responsibility to put on him of just like go make a and I like. He he chose to take the check. He chose to make the movie. I'm not trying to excuse his behavior or anything, but like he is kind of as much a tourist in in this setting as Justin is as a character, and is expected to like extract a, a meaningful art piece out of it. And it's really like the difference between this and City of God is that movie is cast people from the favelas and like is actually I think pretty in tune with like a lot of like bigger trends of of Brazilian history in the couple of decades that it's covering and like weaves them into it nicely, but. Yeah, I don't know. It sucks. That's kind of that's it's unfortunately been like the cap off of like every other paragraph I feel like we're having is like then the movie does this and it, it is bad, but <laughs> uh, just wait till we get to the climax of this movie. But uh <laughs> anyway, um yeah, let's uh, the rest of the flashback is is pretty unimportant. Tessa is revealing that she's on to 3Bs. They're testing some kind of drug. And then suddenly she's dead, and now Justin has to pick up the pieces of the investigation and uh, heads back to London. Uh, we see Bill Nye again, gives a very intimidating lunch, you know. Uh, it's fine. Let's talk about the big cry. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's at his garden, right? Like, he, he stomps through the garden and it's raining, right? Am I remembering it correctly? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The the garden where he first made sweet, sweet fluorescent love to his uh <laughs> to his darling wife. Um and I think 
Rachel, to I don't want to put your your Twitter on on blast, but you had a very good tweet about this where <laughs> you said he he cries thicker than a scone. Um, <laughs> and I I want to <laughs> I kind of want to please elaborate. Sure. So the thing I feel like so much about this movie, aside from being about like how to create a woman without creating a woman at all, will make her. We won't invest in any single character trait, so we'll give her all of them. We don't really know what work she does, so we're going to give it all of the work. Um, And she's hot, and she's, I don't know, got nurse and titties for days. But, like, the thing about, like, the other thing of the movie was, like, the loss of decorum that people have in, like, various states of, like, you know, the ending of what happens to Justin and, like, he didn't want to bother anyone, whatever, we can get into that, but, like, this is supposed to be the one scene where he loses his cool, where he, he, like, finally gets into his heart the magnitude of what he's lost and, like, when he's supposed to be stressed and, like, nothing really comes out. It's just, like, like, it's such a strange, strained animal noise. It, like, reminded me that he also played Voldemort, and there are a bunch of, like, <laughs> YouTube videos of him laughing at one point in that movie where he goes, hey, hey, and, like, I think about that sound, and I think about this sound, and I just, like, don't know how, like, I guess you're just bred in a world that doesn't allow you to really get weird and cry, so you only end up with so much, and there's something the sound can't get through, there's some glottal layer that doesn't work, and he's never really had sex with her because she doesn't exist, so of course he can't be that sad, like, (laughs) what is he, what is he lost but a mirage, and, like, none of us have any sort of, like, yeah, we don't, we can't empathize with him, and he doesn't even fall down, he's just standing up like almost like he's in a shower like what a confounding scene (laughs) (laughs) none of them seem to really know what movie they're in and he he really doesn't especially in this scene um so yeah that's my that's my deconstruction of that cry Caleb and I, we had a we had a fateful call when Warner Brothers said they were not going to release any of their movies in theaters, and I think I think we were both more in touch with our emotions than Ray Fiennes was <laughs> in this scene. <laughs> this is this is a disastrous performance from our boy. <laughs> I I I would say the uh, there's one other moment that that we 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 missed that that got a big LOL from Caleb, <laughs> which is. Um, it's he shot from underneath at his wife's funeral as he's sort of looking into the middle distance and reflecting yeah. on on what he has lost and uh he uh he's just wearing the biggest suit <laughs> and uh maybe it's not fair to <laughs> criticize fashion in 2004 but uh i don't know if you guys have seen picture this is not good podcasting but have if you've seen pictures from the 2003 nba draft just a bunch of dudes in big suits. I'll send I'll send a picture. But it reminded me just a lot of that photo. Uh Caleb, this is a <laughs> Caleb. Caleb, this is you this is a great image. <laughs> holy holy <laughs> shit. Holy shit. <laughs> They're all just they're all like everyone's first suit is kind of how I would describe it. Yeah. <laughs> They're all going to someone's <laughs> wedding that isn't really someone they care about. And they're all like hems are to the floor, pleats are 
across the room they're so ironed like this is, none of them can stand with their legs close to each other because the, <laughs> the houses are long <laughs> except then they're not they're not going to weddings they're going to their beloved wife tessa's funerals all of the all of their respective wives named and if tessa. you look at the pleat on their pants like either side of it is like the width of a cutting board or something <laughs> <laughs> there's no there's just there's just no there's no passion anywhere in this movie and like there's a lot of ideas about people who should be passionate but it's never clear what it's for aside from again like weird aesthetics and like there's really nothing i hate more than like you know flashbacks of like stop filming me which is most of their love scenes of like they're all like somehow (laughs) naked and they're like stop stop oh you're being so funny oh stop following me around with that camera um and 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 i think yeah i think the cry is even worse um even worse than that i'm like trying to think of what would have made it better of like maybe actual like commitment um real chemistry i've also never met two more beautiful actors with like less to share between them yeah they could have been playing with stunt doubles like they just nothing about (laughs) smashing my hands together (laughs) (laughs) it just doesn't just doesn't work no there i think there is a, a moment specifically um where after after they've first uh um hooked up in which Ray Fiennes says, uh, "Thank you for this beautiful gift," which is, <laughs> and it, and it's played as the worst pillow talk in the universe, but somehow is also played as charming, and it is not <laughs> in any way charming. And Ray Fiennes can't. I think that is the worst line in in the film. And Ray Fiennes, and there's no way that Ray Fiennes plays it in any way other than the worst line in the film i don't know it's just he's not given much to work with but boy this sucks so at the, the, we, we we meet justin's co-conspirator which is his wife's lawyer slash cousin and their relationship is not made clear you don't have um, a cousin lawyer mm-hmm. I thought we all had cousin <laughs> lawyers but anyway, he's just some fucking guy, and he cries a lot, and he says it's his Latin gene, which, whoops. Um, <laughs> what the anyway. Hell I missed that. <laughs> anyway, um, but he and his his dear sweet boy, Guido, um, teach Justin how to use the computer. And uh, this is another, <laughs> this is another uh, nominee for... Worst scenes I've seen. You know, in my so life. this movie was nominated for for best editing, um, the year that it that it came out. Which, like, oh my god, it's like what a what an insult to, to everyone. I and that and but the but the computer sorting is like a, a, a it's 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 like even more amped. I don't know because the kid is opening like a million tabs on the computer at once, and then the camera is also <laughs> cutting back and forth between the million tabs, and Ray finds like blinking at it. Um, and then you have the best like computer enhanced moment, yeah. and you're like, ah, pixel, pixel, like, ah, that's it. Then of all the photos, I recognize this man. It's so, it's so like early CSI, like like 2003 CSI vibe. And like Lecaray like hates tech. Like yes. it's almost never a part of these books is like the computers. It's all just about people like reading each other and like talking. So this, I think, this is the moment where I fully was just out, out, out. I mean, I wasn't enjoying myself much but this is 
um, this film is shot like a like a late '90s technology conspiracy thriller, um, or, or paranoia thriller, I should say. But I should say um, there's not that much to be paranoid about because the mystery is actually pretty ob- obvious. She was killed for. I mean, it's laid out in the first forty minutes of this movie what the conspiracy the conspiracy is, but it's still caught in a way that it seems like Justin is going insane and thinks that there's someone constantly after him and he's always looking over his shoulder where the actual text of the film is that he's mostly just reading documents and like talking to a person. Um, so it is, it is an absolute disconnect between, I mean, what John Le Carre's source novel is and also what the actual screenplay is. And then the story that Morales is telling visually, which is so much faster and more disorienting than what is actually going on. And it just looks like shit. And it makes yeah, me feel like shit, mm. quite frankly. I really got a headache. <laughs> That's kind of right. I mean, I guess just like in, in terms of everyone, like every actor kind of feeling like they're in a very different film, like Rachel Weiss in a very like, you know, uh, biopic about, biopic? Bi- whatever, about like some, you know, enterprising young like hero um no one's really sure how brooding to be and right like there's there's like a total I think because of um like everything that you mentioned Caleb like there's just like a total disconnect with the pacing there we're not exactly sure what to be nervous of or what to look out for because we know who's could be after him we already we're not like piecing together information really that much because like nothing that insane is left out of the like pharmaceutical plot that we haven't already figured out or could surmise even within the first like 20 minutes of the film I would say so like yeah it's just like a Mm -hmm. totally disorienting and really um just like grading like at the end you're just waiting for it all to finish instead of I think what could have been more interesting is if it's more if it were more subtle or just took its time a bit more um and made it a little bit more about like the character um like the characters sort of coming to terms with their own hypocrisy and what they've allowed to let slide and what they just haven't looked at or the magnitude of each character's loss. Um, but yeah, I kept feeling like I was missing something or like I was just like unclear on some plot line somehow, but, but no, it was just bad. Yeah. It, it moves so fast. You, it's, it's, it's like accelerated without having anything more to say, basically. Like it, it, it has, mm-hmm. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't have any more words than a than a slower paced movie version of itself would. It just is saying everything a lot faster, which means there's just like a ton of dead air. I think in almost every scene. Um, I, I, the Germany is next. It's the next big set piece. I think probably the best part of the movie. I think. And this is where the actual the paranoia thriller actually pays off mm-hmm. because this is the fi- yeah. first time that Justin is actually being watched when he goes and visits his wife's anti-pharma watchdog friend who is herself being watched by agents of the pharma company. Um, and we, we get a, a, a real, just a, a prolonged walk and talk, which is nice. You know, it's, it, the film actually slows down a little bit and, and while also cutting madly with a guy on a motorbike in a horn, which is yeah. a little rough, but, <laughs> I, I do like it. I kind of like the menace of, of, of who are these kind of mysterious like uh, bullies that are just kind of tracking them throughout Germany. Um, 
and and maybe it's where the quick cutting almost works me a little bit <laughs> in that like they you do get these really harsh uh, interruptions like a soccer ball gets kicked at this woman's kid which is <laughs> but like you know it's just like a soccer ball so you're not intimidated by it um but then the motorcycle cutting quickly past them um and then he gets uh, he gets beat up in his hotel room which i i the um the notes i f- i find in this film to be very funny because they're so um clean and uh it's stop or he, oh the, yeah, yeah. They, they don't actually speak to him they just like give him little notes in front of a water bottle and say read yeah um uh they say stop uh don't do that no 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 and uh uh and and thus come off as so unmenacing in the novel again i don't think this is a good novel but in the novel when he gets death threats they are vile and obscene and have specific references to sexual violence and you know we're gonna cut your dick off and stick it in your mouth back up pig fuck um and in so again this Caleb, film i sent you that text in of- private how would you how dare you read it on air <laughs> <laughs> this novel which is all about sort of the tight social decorum of the british upper class when it when it gets profane it's really quite shocking um and here this there is no there's no shock to what he's actually reading um one because ray fines wouldn't be able to sell that sort of um patrician reserve anyway because he sucks in this movie but two because there's no even there's no effort to shock um and I just I don't understand why they would make that so PG, considering this is an R-rated film, and specifically, you know, or presumably for adults. Um, I don't know. It's a really bizarre choice. It it doesn't matter, I think, for the quality of the movie, but why they would change the language of the mess of of the threats is just it's silly it and baffling. Like super toothless and kind of goofy. And, like, they don't even really beat him up that badly. Like, the stakes, again, they could always be higher and things could always be a little bit less bloodless. And then in every single instance, they're just, like, neutering the film a little bit. They, like, you know, put a little pipette of, like, interest in a little bit of claustrophobia, but then they take it away. How about the part where Rachel Weiss, uh, an extremely pregnant Rachel Weiss, like hallucinates into the bathroom after he's been beat up? Uh, I had to do like a double take. It was so weird. <laughs> it's such a terrible choice. We get some ass in there, but that was about it. Yeah, it's just like, <laughs> what a weird. <laughs> Tessa, is that you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no, Tessa. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. This movie. Anyway, what happens um, next? Um, he goes back to Kenya um, and meets Pete Postlethwaite, basically. Okay, so before we get into what actually happens, I should say this is, I think, the strongest section of the novel, because this is when um, Le Carre does a little bit of interrogation of aid work and the culture around aid work. Lucario said that this is one of the four novels that he's most proud of, which is not great for him. But I think probably it's because of the research that he had to do for it. And this is the section where the research comes through when he's actually giving information on like what goes into a food drop. Um, and so he's 
these things happen four times a day and they're kind of like beautiful experiences for the aid workers who are moved to tears when they say when they see the food falling and then someone tells them so they go to this this scene takes place in south sudan which at the time was in a in a war with with the northern half of the country um but they they make clear that the un buys grain from the north gives it to the south and then the north uses that money to buy weapons to then bomb the south so they sort of aid culture as a sort of self-perpetuating thing that feels very good for the white people who like to think that they're making a difference but is effectively meaningless for the people receiving that aid or perhaps even harmful for those receiving that aid and so that is kind of a even if it's not fully fleshed out because this is a 40 page sequence that is a little bit interesting what should be noted is that the raid does not happen in the novel that is something that they wrote for this movie and this is the worst we can we can talk about pistol pete if you want but i think this is fucking egregious it's kind of a running thing with the like bad adaptations we've been seeing of Lecare is the insistence to like throw an action stinger near the end, you know, like there's the really bad car chase in Tinker Taylor, there's the like Jason Bourne running scene in um a most wanted man. Yeah, I yeah, just to maybe back up a little bit before we go talk about that, um Yeah, yeah. So in the movie, this plane he's on appears to be just kind of like an Uber or something that he can just sort of tell to fly. <laughs> it's like, when have you ever had like an Uber driver take you through drive through or something like that? Um, but he meets Pete Postlethwaite playing, um, I, they, they don't, I don't even remember this character's name. It's, uh, Lord Beer, Dr. Lord Beer, the inventor of the drug. Yes. And so he's, um, we've seen him very briefly earlier in the hospital testing this, this, um, this very dodgy medicine um on someone and then we see him again uh, the timeline in this movie is quite unclear because it's because when we meet him now he's like he's quit the pharmaceutical industry and he's like one of those like burned out hippie types that you meet who like listen to the grateful dead and talk about like why they don't work in finance anymore or something but like is this two weeks after tessa's died is this is this is this one month after their kid like it's just i i have no like it was it was it's whiplash to try to meet him in these two places. Um, but I love Pete Postlethwaite. I think he's just like an eminently like watchable character actor. And you know, I'm fortunately his career is is not exclusively this. I could watch him make like a shitty movie like all the time. Um, but but fortunately he did. He didn't. Oh, this like sentence is so inarticulate. I like him in this movie. Um, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I. One of the only characters who feels like there are real choices behind him. I love the sort of the unbuttoned Tommy Bahama shirt. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he's got his, you know, sort of old man uh, stomach hanging out because he's just sort of. uh, Again, like you said, the sort of Grateful Dead dad type. Um, Yeah, but. Uh, do do we have more to say about about Pete? No, let's get into this raid. Just like a bunch of dudes on horseback, roll up in guns, um, in guns with guns. Um, suck. I don't know. Have you seen Sahara with uh with Matthew McConaughey? A movie we could do on this podcast, Caleb, based on a Clive Cuss. It's a Clive Cussler novel. 
We could also oh, do a Murray okay. miniseries because he did both uh, Jose Saramago and um, and the Two Popes is a, is based on a play as well, I believe. If you want to spend more time on yes. this director that we all love so much, <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, the thing that I found so insulting about this sequence is again, I don't have particular respect for this novel, but the thing that it is at least acknowledging is the fact that the thing that is destabilizing uh, Africa is Europe. It is the West. It is in a new form, in the form of uh, corporate interests, but it is very much white people who are destroying these people. Um, and the film has played lip service to that fact with this grand conspiracy that touches every level of the British government and, and society. And then it, the sequence in which um, African desert raiders come and torch a village, and this is, I, I think this is, this is just misery porn. Um, For sure. I mean, it's very much played as an action set piece in which huts are set on fire. But these are, the film is saying, but we all know who's actually destabilizing this continent, which is Africans. Mm -hmm. And that is... A, I think a, a total repudiation of what little is good about the source work and kind of the whole project of John le Carre, which is an interrogation of Western superiority. Um, this is this is ugly. It's also just a shitty scene. Like I don't know. Like it's just it's just this vague run. Away. Like. It's... <laughs> Yeah, right. The um, the the handheld camera on the mm. horse as the guy runs by and shoots people. Not not. It's cl so clear that Marilis thought that this would be really slick, and it's uh, it's neither it's not cool and it's not interesting and it's, I think oh, I think quite racist. But um, that's all I have to say. Although about it's this. funny because he's like. The movie is very well liked when it comes out, you know, like it gets a lot of reviews. It gets five Oscar nominations like people really bought what this movie was selling. Um, and I guess like we're just more cynical and jaded in 2020. But like, I don't know. What do we I don't know. Like, why does this um, why does why does what seems to be because kind of like a naive crummy movie about 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 uh, about Kenya just do so well in 2005, do you think? Well, I mean, I think this is sort of the peak of liberal humanitarian culture. I mean, this is sort of the height of Bono. Um, and I mean, Live Aid was, you know, a few decades before, but, you know, the whole, this, the, the, this is the era of, you know, American ascendancy and, you know, um, we are the greatest country in the world. And now we have to figure out how to share our wisdom and our wealth um, and take down the corporate overlords who we won't acknowledge are the ones who have enabled that ascendancy. Um, no, I, I think this is just a naive period in, in, in a American and maybe Western culture generally. Right, yeah, the... Our country is so much wiser now. <laughs> I think, right. Like getting rid of any sort of, 
attempt at subtlety is 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 just like making this a film that like matches the vibe of so many other films and i think again like the overlying um perspective of what it was to be the global hegemon during this time of like any violence that happens happens because we're in kenya and is endemic to the place that we're in and the you know wildness that is there versus like perhaps um I think like the the more subtle point of the novel, which I don't think would have gone over very well to an American public um, during this time that like even now is very loath to see any like the cracks show. I think we see it now because it's it's now impossible for every person to ignore. Um, but I would have it, it that raid makes me feel like the movie itself misunderstood its assignment um, and what it was trying to accomplish. Um, in 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 creating a a conspiracy that really isn't even a conspiracy so much as like it's a live reality of just like rampant capitalism um that tries to extract profit um doesn't treat its subjects as humans and like unfortunately like i feel like is just it just feels yeah not even like something that is even like could be elevated to the like level of a conspiracy and spy novel but is is just like a reality that none of us are able to deny but yeah i don't know just but but like the fact that that would be to like audiences during that time like definitely not as interesting as like a oh but we could get some action like we don't have to have any sort of character development from any character or even you know the like united states itself but like or united kingdom rather but like (laughs) um i think it just like sorely misunderstood it was trying to do and just like took the easy way out as it did in every other instance. I really like how you put that with saying that the film misunderstood its assignment and that, 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 cause I mean, the plot of the movie is basically just like colonial colonialism's a bitch and then you die. And the fact that you leave the movie like semi hopeful or think that like the bad people will be held accountable is, is crazy. So should we should we get to to our twin endings? Uh, yeah. All right. So he gets his Uber plane to um take him to uh the stretch of road where his wife has died, and oh, I'm I'm sorry. We have we have another another um nomination for worst line in the film, which is a callback to an earlier interaction. He tries to save uh an African child, and the pilot doesn't let him, uh, and mirroring the words of his wife. You know, when the pilot says, we can't save everyone, uh, Rafe Fiennes, who is now wise, um, says, yes, but we can save this one. Which is just like <laughs> a fucking starfish, like, I don't know, like, <laughs> in an assembly where we all learned about, like, what service projects we could get to get us into college. <laughs> it was like, someone shared the fable of, you can, you can just save this one little starfish if you threw it really hard into the ocean, like. Oh, <laughs> that can't be the takeaway. That can't. Be the <laughs> I didn't sit through an hour and a half of fake racial vice sex for this. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this movie sucks. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's not even um, charming. I think it's the worst one we've no. watched for this whole series. I think it sucks. Ah, uh, but here. Yes, so our our Uber plane <laughs> drops uh, uh, Rafe off uh, at the lake where his where his wife was was ambushed and killed, and suddenly we we cut 
to his funeral. And Bill Nye, his boss, is giving his eulogy. And uh, something that really has not been translated, where he, he says, you know, Justin was was the quintessential gentleman, and he always kept to himself and never let anyone in on his thoughts or plots or whatever. Yada, yada, yada. Bun- bunch of bullshit that kind of works in the novel. It's not, because again, Rafe just isn't mysterious. He's just bad. It's kind of a crazy eulogy because they're like, he killed himself, but like a true gentleman, he he didn't want to inconvenience us, so he did it. (laughs) (laughs) There's an image of him just like curling up on a rock, (laughs) like how like dogs when they're ill they'll go off into the woods so that like no one has to deal with them, like (laughs) (laughs) stiff upper lip. Um, only for his cousin lawyer to then give. His eulogy, which is in fact to read Bernard Pellegrin's threatening letter telling his underlings to silence Tessa, revealing the conspiracy as the journalists, who of course know everything about this, realize exactly what's going on and humiliate the British government and everything is right in the world. And uh, and then we we get the last moments of uh, Rafe Fiennes as he... Gives his wife a big old smacker, and uh, <laughs> just uh, just a, uh, you know, <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> just a just a sensual little smooch, just a wet smackaroo. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, he says, "Is is this another one?" you're my home <laughs> yeah he, he tells tessa that she's his home uh his ghost wife um his hot ghost wife um and then uh and then gets murdered end of the movie um so i've i've this movie sucks and and we've talked about sort of the limits of aid culture but maybe the only thing good that comes out of this film is maybe it's just out of guilt that they were associated with such a piece of shit but john le carre and most of the cast of this film uh started a charity called the constant gardener trust that funded several water projects in nairobi um so i'm you know we can question whether that's a good faith effort to do something good for a country they filmed in or a bad faith effort to cover up this very exploitative movie but uh wash your hands with some clean water exactly (laughs) that's what we have this is the coda to that movie the constant gardener trust which i'm sure is out of money by now but anyway (laughs) what a piece of shit (laughs) uh game show game show let's do it uh rachel this is a game show called good tomatoes and rotten reeds so I have collected reviews from, they are either user reviews from the Rotten Tomatoes page for the film of Constant Gardener, released in 2005, or they are quotes taken out of context from Goodreads reviews of the, of the book, The Constant Gardener by John Le Carre. Um, I will go back and forth between you and Caleb, each reading just one of these excerpts of a quote, and you will have to guess if it's a Goodreads review of the book or a Rotten Tomatoes review of the movie. Any questions before we go into it? I think I got it. 
if the review mentions like the word book or read or watch or has like an obvious like verb that tells you what it's from, I'll just say blank, which is me covering it up. Okay, so the first review goes to Rachel as our guest. Um, Rachel, Bill T writes, quote, a bit of a snoozer of a blank about a guy wanting to get answers about his wife died the way she did. There's tremendous layering about her mystery, so much so I sort of zapped out of carrying after a while. After a while, all I know is that big bad corporations, spelled C O R P E R A T I I O N S, are to blame for everything. Rachel, is that a Goodreads review or Rotten Tomatoes review? I'm gonna say his spelling alone makes me think perhaps he's a student of literature. So I'm gonna say it's a Goodreads review. Rachel, I'm sorry. It is a Rotten Tomatoes review. Okay, <laughs> okay that's okay. <laughs> Make it up. To be clear, uh, uh, I get very competitive about these games, and shit talking is encouraged. So, Trash talk uh, is deeply encouraged. Okay. All right, we cut over to to Caleb. Caleb Amber writes: If I could use only one word to describe this blank, the word would be drag. The story drags, the characters drag, and yet I kept blanking, hoping for the story to move along. More like, move along, nothing to see here. Caleb, is that a Goodreads review or a Rotten Tomatoes review? Um, you know, I think that is grammatically intricate and clever and, and syntactically clever enough to, uh, to say that this is someone who is literate. Um... And I'm going to say that they have read the book. It's a Goodreads review. Caleb, that's correct. It is a Goodreads review. You get one point. Fuck you, Rachel Stone. You come on my podcast and you try to beat me? No fucking way. I think I still might. It's not over yet, man. Okay. All right. Uh, Rachel. Holly writes, quote, Vommed in my mouth a little, then promptly decided <laughs> that this blank wasn't for me. Rachel, is that a Goodreads review or a Rotten Tomatoes review? I feel like Holly moves on vibes alone, and so do I. I'm going to say Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Rachel, I'm sorry. That is a Goodreads review. No. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had such a strong reaction to anything I've ever read. <laughs> You've never vommed in your mouth a little? Caleb, you have vommed in your mask a little. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Caleb. Vicky writes, I have always loved cultural diversity and learning about various ethnicity and traditions around the world and within my own community. So when I saw that this blank is set in Africa, I was definitely in. <laughs> Caleb, is that a Goodreads review or a Rotten Tomatoes review? This, no one, this person has never looked at a book in their life. This is absolutely, <laughs> absolutely Rotten Tomatoes. Caleb, it's Goodreads. Oh, fuck. <laughs> God damn it. All right, Caleb is in the lead with one point. <laughs> Rachel, Andy writes, quote, an absorbing plot narrative that is suspenseful at times, benefiting from the masterfully written romance at the heart of it all. Rachel, is that a Rotten Tomatoes review or a Goodreads review? This is so stressful. Um, <laughs> this is like the people on Bitcoin who like have like one shot left to get their like two hundred million dollars back. Um, I'm gonna say it's a Rotten Tomatoes review because uh, I feel like they're just like blinded by like maybe being attractive to really find 
You said you said Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, yeah. Rachel, that's correct. You've got your first point. <sighs> yes. Rachel is on the board, tied up. Caleb Corbin writes promotes immoral themes and is boring. I shut it off. <laughs> cool title though. <laughs> Caleb, is that Rotten Tomatoes or Goodreads? Uh, Corbin is a movie watcher, one hundred percent. Rotten Tomatoes. Caleb, correct. Your second point. It's it's great to be a returning champion. That's all I'm going to say. You have only won one of these, and we've done like I know. six now. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, Carl Edgar T. writes, Very solid drama with message to the people. Influence in society <laughs> has to be guaranteed. Four stars. Rachel, is that a Rotten Tomatoes review or a Goodreads review? Could you repeat his name one more time? Carl Edgar T. Is is that a full name or is that just an initial? That's just Can their user. Spell out. Uh, I am no. That's his username. It's just it's just the letter T. Um. So he spelled out his first two names, but it was like, no, no, I don't want to go overboard with with the last name. Here's the thing, Caleb. Have you ever thought about spies? Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe something that hasn't crossed your mind. But certainly trust uh, our old Paolo Carres and uh, Carl Edgar T. This is a this is a this is a um. This is absolutely 100%. I'm going to risk it all of this. I'm Goodreads with you. Rachel, I'm sorry. It's a Rotten Tomatoes review. Oh, <laughs> uh, whoop. Okay. Well. But also, I think if there's one takeaway from this game, it's that uh, the difference between Rotten Tomatoes and Goodreads is incredibly arbitrary. Um, and they're both <laughs> mostly populated by idiots. <laughs> um. Yeah, a book can be bad, a movie can be bad. They can both be like equal level of like kind of kind of trash. Uh you know? And I feel like people break books a little higher. It's like, you know, you you, you know, like put in a little more effort, you're a little perhaps more intelligent. Not true, I say, after this. Well, <laughs> and I think we can all agree that there is perhaps no lower form of media than the podcast. So <laughs> Caleb. Uh-huh. What what is the score? Can we get a, an update on the score? Um uh, you have two points, Rachel has one point. Okay, so is this to seal my win? Um no, I'll do like a bonus round at the end, so uh, this is how he steals it from me always. Caleb. Skylar B writes, You wouldn't believe how great this blank is. So just blank it. Blank the hell out of it. <laughs> Caleb, is that a Rotten Tomatoes review or a Goodreads review? Okay. I'm I'm gonna can I get the name one more time? Skylar B. Skylar B lives in rural Ohio, or exurb. I'm going to say exurb in Ohio. Um, and uh, she reads a lot of novels while she waits for her kids to come home. So I'm going to say that this is this is this is a mom who reads a lot of a lot of mediocre books. Good reads. Skylar may be a mom who reads a lot of mediocre re- books, but this was written for Rotten Tomatoes, Caleb. I'm sorry. <sighs> Damn it. Well, you know what? She got to watch hot people be hot, so very happy for her and her kids. Rachel, um, this is the bonus round, so uh, if you get this one question correct, uh, you will get uh, three points, which will put you in the lead, and then Caleb will just have one question left to see if he can tie it up or win it. So, question mark, question mark, question mark writes, what I learned from the constant gardener, colon, the world is fucked, but always keep your good heart. Rachel, is that a Rotten Tomatoes review or a Goodreads review? 
I mean, it has a sort of happy ending, so I'm going to do some, like, uh, you know, it seems like the film, you know, ended a little more upbeat about, you know, colonialism. Um, I'm going to say it's a Rotten Tomatoes review. Rachel, that's correct. It is a Rotten Tomatoes review. Rachel I scores to fucking two points. If you, if you steal another victory away from me on these bullshit bonus rounds, you didn't even make her speak Swedish this time. It's true. <laughs> All right, Caleb, you've got one question left. I will give you. I'll give you. I will give you two points for this, as well. So you have two <laughs> points to 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 Rachel's three. So if you get this one correct, uh-huh. you'll have won it. If you get it incorrect, then then Rachel will have won it. Caleb. Okay, sounds good. Here is your quote. Joseph H. writes, I'm a strong fiscal conservative who plans on going into pharmacy <laughs> in college. Yet, I really thought this blank was powerful. <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes are good reads. Uh, hmm. So he's... I can read it again if you wants, want. Yeah, he wants to go into to pharmacy, pharmacy or uh, pharmaceuticals after college. He... he, he, uh, he Quote, I am a strong fiscal conservative who plans on going into pharmacy in college. Yet I really thought this blank was powerful. Okay, so this is a teenager. Teenagers don't read. This is uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Caleb, correct. It's Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Fuck. Yes. <laughs> Two in a row, baby. I might never lose again. Uh, I think this um, I think this fiscal conservative pharmacist, uh, <laughs> that motherfucker charged the capital. Uh, just going to give a guess. <laughs> Or he's like at Oberlin somehow, and like <laughs> does Oberlin have a pharmacy program? In, in some way, I don't know. I don't know. That's the game show. Um, Caleb, congratulations, you've won. Rachel, uh, perhaps next time you're on, uh, uh, you will win. Yeah. Um. So, I was gonna say now it's time to debase yourself, but you've already done that. But now it's time to doubly debase yourself and. Compress all of your. You complex... have to vomit in your mask now. No. Oh. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>, fuck you. <laughs> you compress all of your complex thoughts about this film and about this novel, which was so bad you didn't finish reading it, <laughs> and say, Rachel Stone, is this film, The Constant Gardener by Fernando Morales, is it a rat adaptation? Is it a bad adaptation? Did it make you feel a little bit sad adaptation? A little mad adaptation, perhaps? <laughs> oh. Um, okay, now that I've collected myself <laughs> of my thoughts, you know, mm, I would I would give it a square, um you know, a little bit of a sad adaptation, uh, in, because it got my hopes up in a couple spaces that it could have been a rad adaptation. Didn't go too into the bad adaptation. Didn't fully commit into being as bad adaptation as it could have been. It's just a sad adaptation. Uh, you know? Yeah. That's what I think. Frank Meyer. You know, Caleb, you uh, uh, you used a great turn of phrase earlier, um, talking about Ray Fine's performance. You talked about how he needs to muster this patrician reserve, um, and you said that that Rafe doesn't have it in him. But uh, 
uh, I, I just rewatched the Prince of Egypt on VHS this weekend, which uh, has, uh, <laughs> has, uh, has Rafe finds as, as Ramses, a, a patrician with some reserve. Um, so I know that he can do better than he's done here. Uh, basically, like everyone involved in this movie has done like way better things than this movie. Um, this, is, this is a bad fucking adaptation. Um, so here's the thing. This movie sucks shit. That said, this novel is also not good. Um, so I don't think that I don't think the film is egregious, particularly egregious in the way that the novel is not. So I don't think it's fair to say that it is a bad adaptation. I think it it's worse than the novel, but the novel is not good. Um, I I mentioned Bono before and his Old Navy Red campaign which was a big fad in like 2008. So I'm going to say that this film is a fad adaptation. It is completely a product of its time. And I'm not at all bummed that that time is over because what a shitty time it was. Just look at Ray Fine's suit. Anyway, um, no, this movie, this movie is just pure 2005 and may it, fucking rest in peace um fat adaptation for me i'm gonna revise my answer a tiny bit and say that like this seems like exactly the kind of movie where like you know i'm 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 hanging out with my family and like oh what movie are we gonna put on and like oh, we're gonna have some popcorn and like oh you know you don't want to watch you know a, a chick flick for the girls and you know you don't want to watch a you know, a, like a you know interesting but kind of like twisty thing for you know the adults in the room. It's like squarely a dad adaptation of just like something you throw on that like your dad or maybe my dad, probably my dad loved. Doesn't want to talk about it. Doesn't want to say a single thing about it. Had some thrills. Had some action. Had just enough of all of it. But you can fall asleep on the couch, close your eyes, and say that you're resting them, but you're not asleep. <laughs> so that's that's i feel like that's my final my final answer rachel thanks so much for being on this has been this has been a a lot of fun this has been more fun than uh than than watching the concert gardener was um (laughs) where 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 can our our listeners uh our parents probably and no more no but um where can our listeners find you they can find me online i'm always online i'm always on twitter you search my name there are probably a lot of me but i think i'm i forgot my username i think i'm stone of arc on twitter you can find me there uh find me at uh law360.com uh violence and stories and probably other places on the internet um but yeah probably a little bit too much Thank you, everyone, for listening. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Our artwork is from Zach Sisk, and our uh, theme song is by Slow Your Roll. Take care. We'll see you next week to discuss uh, A Most Wanted Man. Happy gardening. (laughs) 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 Fucking nailed it.